straight from the pages of Scripture, working through the book of 1 Peter. And as we look at 1 Peter, I want to give you just a, a quick reminder of who is writing and whom he, to whom he is writing. Peter, the apostle that we know well, Peter, this brash one who would rise up in his own uh, desire to do right and, and, and try his best to defend Jesus and cut off the ear of a soldier, and then who would warm his hands by the fire of the enemy and would ultimately curse the name of Jesus, saying, I don't know him. He would deny Jesus, and yet he would be restored and preach, and 3,000 people would be saved. This Peter, who often kept one of his feet in his mouth, is writing to a group of people who have struggled and suffered. He is a man who walked with Jesus for three years, and he's writing to a group of people who have never seen Jesus. He's writing to a region of Pontus and Galatia and Bithynia and Cappadocia. We've studied through this in those very first few verses. He writes to a region that's far away from the birthplace of Christianity, and the reason that they're so far away is they're persecuted. If you remember, just a couple of weeks ago, we said from Acts chapter 8, when a man named Stephen was stoned, and, and that doesn't mean that he got high, it means that people got angry with him, and they picked up rocks, and they threw rocks at him. And they hit him over and over again with rocks because they were so infuriated with him sharing the good news about Jesus, and they literally bludgeoned him with those rocks to death. The Bible says in Acts chapter 8, on that day began a wave of persecution and the disciples were scattered out. The disciples fled for their lives. They were beat down and beaten up. They were tossed out of their houses and tossed into the Colosseum to be uh, the, the spectacle of the crowd as they fought off lions and gladiators. They were harassed. They were tortured, they were pressured, they were belittled, they were marginalized, they were terrorized. That's the group of people to whom Peter, the apostle who walked with Jesus, is writing. And he's writing to us. He's writing to assure them that God's grace is enough and that God has a plan, that he hasn't forgotten them, and he hasn't forgotten us. Anybody here ever feel forgotten by God? Have you ever felt like God may have lost your address and he didn't know where to send answers to your prayers? I mean, you prayed them and nothing came back from heaven. If you've ever felt that way, then I have good news for you. The Bible speaks to your circumstance today. It speaks to our world today. Now, as we begin, I invite your attention to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 6, focusing today on verses 8 through 9, just those two last verses. But as you turn to 1 Peter 1, once you've found it, look back up this way. I want to give you a little more background culturally, not from their world, but ours. Open Doors USA is an international nonprofit. It's a watchdog group, if you will. And their sole focus is to strengthen and support and encourage the persecuted church around the globe. Most of you probably this morning didn't identify too much with the persecuted church. I know I didn't. I woke up in the comfort of my own home with the freedom to travel and to come to this place. I, I this morning did not have to call somebody else and say, where are we meeting today? There are people all around the world that had to do that. 
You, you didn't have to do that. You knew 1508 Hardy Street was the place you were going to be. You came here last week. You were here the week before. You understood, this is where I'll meet with my friends and my brothers and sisters in Christ. But all around the world today, there are groups of people that are meeting in clandestine meetings, in quiet places. None of you got in your car and left your home and came to church today and feared being arrested on the way here. Well, I can't say all of you or none of you. There may be a few of you, depending on how you drive, that had some fear or hesitation. But for the most of us, for the rest of us, if you will, we didn't fear being arrested for gathering to worship today. We didn't fear gathering in this place. We, we have freedom. And Peter writes to a group of people who had great fear. And our world is filled with people who worship in fear. Let me give you a few statistics. I realize statistics usually are, are not very exciting, but you need to hear this and grasp it. 160 Christians this past month died for their faith. Worldwide, 160 Christians. Those are brothers and sisters of yours. They are men and women who literally did nothing more than what you have done today as you have sung songs of affirmation that God is your God. Those 160 souls affirm that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that He lived a sinless life, and He died a substitutionary death on a cross, and He rose victoriously, and He's coming again. Basically, in a nutshell, all of that theologically sums up what it means to be a Christian, right? Absolutely it does. Well, that's all they did. They just said, I am a Christian. And because of that, they faced hostility from their government or their neighbors, and 160 of them were killed. Do you realize that one in three countries throughout the world exert some form of hostility upon believers? We don't face that. Now, I, I want to make sure you hear this. I'm not trying to minimize your pain. I, I'm not trying to belittle what you're struggling through. But these believers that Peter is writing to weren't facing just a health issue here or there. That the greatest problem in their life was not a result of their sin as it is for many of us. Some of our problems come upon us because of the sinfulness of our lives. But, but these people who were beaten down, chased, oppressed, ridiculed, and terrorized were in that condition because of their faith, not in spite of it. And you and I need to hear that. In fact, let me put back on the screen something I shared a couple of weeks ago. It's a quote by John MacArthur. I, ho I hope we've got it. Christians during this day and age were encased in wax and burned at the stake to light Nero's gardens. They were crucified and thrown to wild beasts. Though the official persecution apparently was confined to the vicinity of Rome, attacks on Christians undoubtedly spread unchecked. Nobody was stopping this persecution, and it went all the way to other parts of the empire, uh, even with the blessing of authorities. Why do I share all of that? Again, I want you to hear, in the middle of that kind of pain, fear, and trouble, Peter writes these words. Look with me, if you will, in verse 6 and following. So be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though... You must endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. And being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. 
And look at verse 8. This will be our emphasis for today, verses 8 and 9. You love him even though you have never seen him. Though you do not see him now, you trust him. Isn't that interesting? And he goes on to say, you rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy. The reward for your trusting him is the salvation of your souls. Mark those words against the culture of our day, not just his. Over 60 countries in the world with hostility and persecution even legalized toward Christianity. Open Doors USA saying that the Christian faith is the single most persecuted religious group of any on the earth. But should we be surprised? The Bible actually said it would be that way. Jesus said that there would be many who would revile you in his name. They would persecute you because of his name. The Bible says that any and all who live godly lives in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. My question to us today is how do we respond to the world around us? It seems like more and more we are swimming upstream in a river of godlessness. Would you agree with that? Anybody give testimony to that? It seems like the darkness gets darker. It seems like raising our children and our grandchildren is a fearful and frightful thing because of the cultural dynamics that are all around us. And yet he writes into the middle of that situation and tells them that they can have hope. And in fact, he describes their own experience to them. I find that kind of strange. Peter, why would you tell them what they're doing? I mean, look at those words. He said, you love him even though you've never seen him. You believe him. You trust him though you do not see him now. And you are rejoicing in him with an inexpressible sense of joy. He's describing their experience. To me, that just seems plain weird. Peter, why would you do that? I mean, all of his words so far have been a little odd. We said earlier when he told them that they can rejoice in God at all times, and we studied and focused on this, he told them that if they could see themselves as God sees them, that they could praise the Lord at all times. It doesn't make sense to praise time in times of persecution. It seems like when things are good, I can thank the Lord. But no, he's saying when hardship is established in your life, when difficult times come, God is still in control, he is still sovereign over your circumstance, and he still has a desire and a design for you to worship him. And then he describes, you know what, this is what I'm seeing in your life. This runner comes into town from far away, he comes to Pontius, he brings the letter, and they begin to read it, and it says, you love God. You've not seen him, but you love him. You've not seen him today, but you trust him today. You don't know him in a physical, tangible, visible way, and yet you rejoice in him. Folks, I want you to see this. What Peter is describing is the norm of Christianity. He's describing what the Christian life ought to be. And when he does that, he does that to show them a fixed reference point. You see, all of the world is pushing against our faith. We are swimming upstream. And he's saying by one strong stroke of love and another stroke of faith, of belief, and one stroke of joy, you can swim upstream. He said, you're doing this. He's saying, I know it's tough. I know you've lost loved ones. I know you've faced persecution. And yet you can endure all of this. And the glory of it is, it's leading somewhere. It's heading to the salvation of your souls. 
This morning in Sunday school, we talked about the inexpressible joy of salvation, past, present, and future tense. We know that God has saved us, is saving us, and will save us. And the will save us part is what he's holding out here. He's saying there's a reward coming. Don't give up. I would bet that some of you have felt this way. You have said, I trusted God. I'm a Christian. But in this circumstance or that circumstance, God let me down. If you've ever felt that way, I believe with all of my heart that's a false confidence in something other than the plan and the purpose of God. You see, he was saying, you've not seen him, but you trust him. And for you and for me, that idea of seeing him is so in tune with who we are as Americans. We all act like Missourians. We say, show me. i got to see it to do what? Believe it. I want you to see in God's economy, we flip the script. It's not that seeing is believing, but rather, help me out, believing is seeing. You see, when you trust God, when you place your faith in Him, all of a sudden, He begins to open up an unseen world of faith that you and I can't comprehend. And you need to begin to trust Him, even in the midst of your difficulties. Now again, He's talking to people that are facing real persecution, real struggle. But for you and for me, We say, well, I need to see it to believe it. I I believe he's describing for them true Christianity and helping them, almost like a swimming coach, say, if you'll begin these strokes, if you will do this, you won't get swept away in this godlessness, and you continue to move forward. Again, relatively speaking, you and I live in comfort and ease. But he talks about hardship. Now, I want to speak to you for just a moment about this notion of how following Jesus is costly. In verses 6 through 9, he gives us two principles we need to hear. We kind of moved past these verses in last week's sermon because we had a guest speaker with us. But I want you to hear two principles for us about hardship. How many of you have ever faced hardship? How many of you are in denial right now and have not raised your hand? Many of you. All of us have faced difficult days, pain-filled days, struggles. It has been said that if you are not currently in a storm, you have probably just come out of one or you're headed toward one. That seems real optimistic, doesn't it? Well, the Christian life is not just blind optimism, it's realism. It says life will be hard. And yet, even in spite of hardship, God is working out a plan. So here's what I want you to see. Hard times are both necessary and purposeful. They're necessary because they prove our faith. Anybody can say they believe in God when everything's fine, but what are you going to lean on when times get tough? When times are hard, when you don't understand, when you don't have answers, when you look around and you say, I just don't think I can make it. What are you going to depend upon on that day? And when hard times come for the Christian, it is very intentional and necessary because it proves our faith. Here, Peter says it's like the one who would refine gold. He talks about the refiner's fire. Some of you say, well, God's been turning the heat up on me for a while. I felt that, Pastor. Well, I want you to see that there's a purpose in that. You see, when the refiner begins the process of heating the gold to a point where it liquefies, all of the impurities begin to float to the top. And he will begin to slowly skim the impurities off the top. And as he skims the impurities, one of the coolest things I've heard, I read and I studied this week, this process, I, I watched some videos of them purifying gold. 
The, the one who is refining, the one who is in charge of the heat, the fire, and is moving the impurities out of the gold, looks for something unique. He looks into that molten liquid gold, and when it's truly pure, he can see his own reflection in it. I believe that God, our refiner, is looking into the lives of his children and he's, his desire is to see his reflection in you and me. And when we begin to look like him, when he sees his reflection in us, then and only then are we moving into this place where we are understanding that those hard times are necessary and purposeful because now he's making us look like him. He's making us to fit into the image and the mold of Jesus. And when he does that, our lives are fit for healthy service. Hard times in your life are purposeful and necessary, and you need to hear that. Charles Stanley wrote an incredible book called How to Handle Adversity. You know him as the, the pastor of the storied First Baptist Church of Atlanta, Georgia. And here's what he said, adversity or hard times is the most effective tool for the advancement of our spiritual lives. Do you realize that times, the best thing that can happen for your spiritual growth is adversity do you realize at times and maybe you've even come to this realization if I just put Jesus down life would be easier if you lived in first century Rome and you were under the threat of sword or you were under the threat of arrest or you were under the threat of being thrown to the lions in the Colosseum you might say I'm being persecuted because of my faith not in spite of my faith and if I would just stop this sense of belief in Jesus and walk away and say like everybody else, Caesar is Lord, then my life would be easier. And that might be true for a time. But we understand the end of the story. And we go back to our text that said the reward is the salvation of your souls. You see, if we are to walk away from the faith, then the reward ultimately is the damnation of our souls. That we would be separated eternally from God. Peter was one among those disciples following Jesus with throngs following. And Jesus began to make hard statements. And as he did, one by one, the crowd trickled away. They turned and went home. They left following Jesus. And he turned to his disciples and he said, will you leave me too? And wisely, the voice of the disciples came back and said, Lord, where else can we go? You alone have the words of life. Church family, I, I need you to hear me this morning. Our culture is in desperate, desperate shape. But part of the desperation is because the church has not risen up to a level of privilege that God has given us. We're not doing that which Peter has said that they were doing. They, in the midst of their struggle, loved God even though they'd never seen Him. They believed God even though they didn't presently see Him. And they were rejoicing in God knowing that there's coming a day of reward. So for you and for me, is that the norm of our Christian experience? Are we walking in this place of faith and love and joy? Put all of those together. I mean, think about this. Without pressure, there is no diamond. Without pressure, there is no formation of a diamond. Without the refiner's fire, there is no pure gold. Anybody here ever been between a rock and a hard place? I bet you didn't pray for it. We pray, Lord, put me between marshmallows and jello. 
God, give me a soft place to land. God, I don't want adversity. God, I want to be in this little holy huddle. I want to be in a holy bubble, and I want to be insulated from all of the hurts and the heartaches and the pains of life. And Jesus comes to these people with this sense of grace, infusing their faith. And Peter says, you love him, even though you've never seen him. You trust him, even though you don't see him now. And you are experiencing joy, increasing upon joy in an inexpressible way. You can't even contain the joy that's in your life. I, I find myself so uh, amused and, and dis, discouraged at, at the level of joylessness in the church. If we can't come together with celebration in our hearts for all that Jesus has done, I've experienced that kind of joy on two seasons of life. One was only for about two weeks, and it happened on another continent. I got to worship with a group of believers, all of whom, had, literally all of whom, had been thrown out of the church, or, or thrown out of their family, excuse me, because they joined the church. They had turned away from their false gods and turned to the one true God and to a person, men, women, boys, and girls, had been cast out of their homes. And I saw unbelievable joy. I've shared this story with you before. We were worshiping there, and for the sake of, of security of those that are there, I won't even mention the name of the country, but as we worshiped, we had no chairs. We had no air conditioning. It was sweltering hot. The room was packed. It was small, and we sat there on the ground, and we sang songs together, and we worshiped together, and I was going to get up and preach through an interpreter, and I sat my Bible down beside me, and we began to sing a song, and as we were singing, they stood to their feet. They could not help it. No one told them to stand. There wasn't a worship leader. There was no one playing an instrument. They just stood to their feet and began to sing. And as they sing, I, I realized that my American sense of, of, of personal space was not on their agenda. I, I don't know about you, but I like my personal space. You know, oftentimes we tell you to get up and hug one another or shake hands. We probably need to preface that every week and say, hug your neighbor if they're agreeable to being hugged, right? There are a lot of you that are going, I'm good. I'll shake your hand. I'll give you a fist bump, a high five. Well, I realized that there was somebody standing unbelievably close to me, like right here. And I looked, and it was a little lady, and she was about that tall. And she had picked my Bible up off the ground, and she was holding it like this. And I found that curious. And as I got ready to preach, it was almost military. She turned it around and she handed it to me and she bowed. And I stood to preach and I found out later that I had greatly offended them. Because this treasured book, many of them had literally seen people beaten because they held a copy in their possession. And I had put it on the ground. And never again did I look at my Bible the same way. I began to treasure it, and I say, God, you were so good to me. I, I've never seen Jesus with my physical eyes, but I love him. I, I've never seen him. This day I haven't seen him, but today I'm trusting him to the point that I'll obey him. 
And, and I know that there's inexpressible joy in Jesus regardless of what I'm facing. There are people in this room that are grieving. There are people in this room that are battling health issues. There are people in this room that are struggling with job loss. They're struggling with all kinds of pressures of life. But can I tell you that when the pressure is on, Peter describes it this way, that you can love the Lord and you can trust the Lord and you can rejoice in the Lord knowing that there is a reward coming. I've titled this message, No Sight Necessary, or No Sight Required, because I want you to see very simply three things from this text here in a moment. Let me give you one more uh, thought about this. Uh, a 19th century theologian named J.B. Stoney said this, Real faith is always increased by opposition, while false confidence is damaged and discouraged by it. I want you to read that statement with me. Everybody sit up straight, take in a big deep breath, and read with me. Real faith is always increased by opposition, while false confidence is damaged and discouraged by it. You see, if you come to me and say, Pastor, I trusted God and He let me down, you had false confidence in the wrong thing. Real and genuine faith in the Lord says, regardless of what comes, I know that he's working out a plan. Regardless of what happens, I know that I'm in his hand. I'll trust him. False confidence is discouraged. Real faith is built up. I, I said this this morning. I had the opportunity to preach across town for a fellow pastor who just needed some respite. And he asked me to come and preach, and I shared this thought. If you have not run face first into the devil lately, it may be that the two of you are running in the same direction. Hello? We live in relative comfort here. Peter saw the Lord, and he denied him. Jesus said to Thomas, you're blessed because you believed and have seen me. He had touched the scars in his hands and his side. He saw the scars in his brow and on his feet but he said even greater blessing will come for those who believe who have not seen and will not see he was talking about us and Peter writes to a group of people who would have said if anybody in the world should have it together Peter should he walked with Jesus just because you see if Jesus walked in that back door this morning some of you would not believe any more than you possibly could right now seeing is not believing some of you say, oh, if God would just give me a sign, I would believe more. No, you wouldn't. You would want another sign and another miracle. And then you would trust God for the miracles and not for who he is. Peter said, you love God even though you've never seen him. You trust him even though you don't see him now. And you rejoice in him knowing there's a reward coming. And that ought to make a dried up Baptist want to stand up and shout. For me... I find myself overwhelmed that real faith is always built by opposition and yet we begin to grasp at what we need. Maybe God has you right where you are today to encourage you in your faith. Think about this with me. How many people actually saw Jesus? I began to try to count up. John 6, there's a multitude of people following, and it winnowed down to the 12, so a multitude saw. There were 120 in the upper room. We know that at least 500 saw him after the resurrection. But seeing Jesus isn't the clincher, because a lot of people walked away. He, he is coming back, and we will see him, but we trust in that today. 
Three very quick thoughts I want you to seek today. Number one, sight is not needed to determine love for God. I don't have to see him to love him. I can know by faith that everything that he's revealed to me about himself is true. That he is who he says he is. That comes straight from our text. Number two, I want you to see this. Sight is not needed to walk by faith. He, he says, you don't see him now, but you trust him. You walk in obedience. Number three, sight is not needed to produce joy in your life. Some of you say, oh, if I could just see the Lord. We will one day. But until then, we walk by faith and not by sight. And faith is the evidence of things that are unseen. It is the assurance, the substance of things hoped for. Peter had seen him and, and, and didn't totally follow or trust all the time. Seeing does not equate to believing, but believing will equate to seeing. For you and for me, we grasp what we need. Years ago, we finished up our Sunday activities. I had preached that night at a church that I was serving on staff. Steph was on the phone with her mom, and I walked through the bedroom, and all of a sudden, I thought somebody had shot me in the back with an, a bow and arrow. I mean, just got me. And I went to the floor, and I began to roll around, and I do remember this. I don't remember much. I don't think I blacked out, but I do remember Stephanie telling her mom, I think Scott has been possessed by a demon. I was rolling around and squealing like a little girl. I was in the worst pain I had ever experienced in my life. I didn't know what hit me. I didn't know where it came from. I just wanted it gone. Some of you already know exactly. You've made a medical diagnosis because you've been there, done that. What was I having? A kidney stone. That's right. That was the first of 11 that I've had the joy of experiencing over the course of my life. But that first one, I had no idea. And we went to the hospital that evening and we got to the hospital and the lady smiling at the the desk clearly did not understand how close to death I was I was on the verge of going to glory I mean I was doing the Fred Sanford Elizabeth this is the big one I'm coming to join you the lady handed me a clipboard and said fill this out in triplicate and give me your driver's license and your insurance card and everything within me wanted to get up close to her in the name of Jesus and smite her I wanted to pull her over that counter and if I had I'd have probably told her to turn the other cheek and let me slap the other side lady I'm dying they finally got me. she said go sit over there I said are you kidding me sit over there I couldn't sit if I sat, I was in pain. If I stood up, I was in pain. If I laid down, I was in pain. If I curled into a fetal position, I was in pain. And I know so because I did all of those things right there in front of God and everybody, including, uh, you know, nasty nurse Nancy that was up there telling me I was going to be fine. I'm saying, look, lady, I will give you my driver's license so long as while I'm holding my arm out, you'll put an IV with narcotics right here. I need them right now. I got into the, the, the little room, and the gurney that they gave me was miserable. It could have been a bed from the Taj Mahal, and it would not have been good enough. Nothing was good enough. I literally found myself laying on the cold tile floor underneath the gurney. The doctor almost missed me because he came in and said, well, I guess he left. And I'm going, no, I'm down here. I wanted so desperately some relief. We grasped. For that which we need. We play with things that we want. At that moment I was in no 
no place at all to talk to you about small talk. I didn't want to talk about the weather or sports or politics. I wanted drugs immediately. Legal kind, but I wanted drugs. I wanted relief. The psalmist said, in a desperate place of his journey, as a deer pants for water, so my soul pants for you, O God. We've got to get to the place where we have that kind of desperation for the Lord. And when we do, it won't matter what circumstances we are facing. I, I believe with all of my heart this. I, I truly do. I, I preached almost the same message earlier, and I'm preaching it now. And God led me in my heart and my spirit to, to say this there, and I, I believe he wants me to say it. There's somebody in this room specifically, it may be a lot of you, that the Holy Spirit wanted to take this message and infuse some hope into. Maybe you're facing hardship. Maybe you're facing difficulty. Maybe you're in a, a struggle of your life. But the Bible says, even though you haven't seen him, you love him. And even though you don't see him right now, you trust him. And even though you are not experiencing reward today, there is inexpressible joy welling up in your life because of all the goodness and the grace and the mercy of Jesus. We can endure and there's no sight necessary. You don't have to see it to believe it. You don't have to see him to love him. You don't have to experience it right now, right here today to to rejoice in Him. Let me give you one final thought. It's four or five things, and you may not have time to write them down, but what is ultimately, what is Peter describing? He's describing the Christian life, and here's what it looks like. A, a true Christian loves Christ, believes in Christ, rejoices in Christ, and, and through all of this, they're receiving the salvation of their souls, and even through that experience, Though they've never seen Jesus, just like we've never seen Jesus, they're rejoicing.